Okay, so Matthew 5, 21. Like I said, we've already covered this. You probably, you, some of you may have been here, may, some of you may not have been. But um, we're going to look at this, read this again. You have heard that it was said to the people long ago, do not murder. And anyone who murders will be subject to judgment, punished by the court. But I tell you that anyone who is angry with his brother will be subject to judgment. Anyone who says to his brother, Raka, a word spoken in anger, is answerable to the Sanhedrin. But anyone who says, you fool, will be in danger of the fire of hell. Another word spoken in anger. So he's speaking against anger here. Therefore, if you are offering your gift at the altar and there remember that your brother has something against you, leave your gift, your sacrifice, your your worship, there in front of the altar. First go and be reconciled to your brother and then come and offer your gift. Then come and worship. Worship God. Make your sacrifice. So I'm going to be doing four of these today. That's the first one. I'm going to do another one we've already done and then do two new ones we've never done before. Um, and I want you to think about this. Jesus had been living now for 30 years, 30, you know, 30-some years on, on this earth among human beings. He'd lived in a village. He had worked in villages. He had traveled around through villages. He'd been teaching in villages. He had seen human life. He had seen the way human life as a man. Of course, as God, he had seen all human life in every place uh, and knew it all. But um, as, as a man, he had witnessed just common village life, Jewish village life, and what things happened and what went on. And he had seen the failures, the breakdowns in that village life again and again and again, the breakdowns of relationships, the, the failures to love your brother, the failure to love your sister. He'd seen that again and again. And what he's giving us in the Sermon on the Mount is examples of this, examples of places where these relationships, where love breaks down, where people fail to love one another in the village, in the city. And for us, as we receive this word now, we're thinking of in in the church life as well, in the life of the church. He wants this for his church. Jesus had witnessed these common failures again and again to love one another. And the one he's describing here is as common as dirt, right? And it's still common today. One man gets angry with another man. He either just feels the anger or he shows the anger in some way. Jesus gives two examples. They could, he could say raka or he could say fool. In anger, he, he, he could say that. But it's not that Jesus is just limiting himself to these instances. He's saying you are angry at someone. You show your anger also. Some, sometimes you might just hold it. But, but people often, even if you try to contain it, people often know. Even if you don't say raka or fool, people still can sense the anger, sense the resentment. There's a coldness. There's a distance. There's a silence. So Jesus is saying, you're angry. One person gets angry at another person, and the person, uh, and, and, and so something has come between them. They express it, or he doesn't express it. The first instance Jesus gives is not even expressing it. But the man, he just has it in his heart. But th- that anger happens. One man does something or says something in anger, and then there's a broken relationship. And now one person has something against the other person. And he says, if someone, because you have acted in anger, or you know, maybe it's something else as well, but he's, he's focusing on anger here. If someone's acted in anger or even had an anger and, and distanced themselves because of their anger, there's something broken in the village. There's something broken in the community of God's people. There's something broken in the church. And it must be dealt with. Um, 
Uh, now there's something in between. He says, and before you just go on with your worship life, with your life of prayer and your life of sacrifice and your life of worship, deal with that broken relationship in your village. Deal with that broken relationship with your church and what he, in your church. And he's basically saying this: if you are angry, put out the fire. It's like you're in the village, your house is on fire, and your fire, the fire in your house is going to spread to others. Other houses are going to burn. Get the fire out in your house. Put the anger out. Extinguish it. Put it out. Deal with it. Get rid of it. And go and reconcile with the brother who in your anger, whatever you did, whatever you said, however you acted, even if it was just silence and coldness, whatever it was, Deal with the fact that there's something between you and that sister, between you and that brother. First, extinguish your own anger. It doesn't do you any good to, to, I mean, I've seen this happen before. The person's still super angry and they go and have a meeting. (laughs) Supposed to be a Christian meeting. They're still angry in the meeting and they come together and the meeting does no good. You know why the meeting does no good? Because you didn't extinguish the fire. You didn't put out the fire of your own rage, which Jesus tells you to put out. Put out the anger of your own fire. This person knows you're angry. This person knows what's going on most of the time. You know? and, so, and so he wants you to reconcile with them, but it, that begins with you putting out your own fire and then dealing with, and then reconcile. Because you can only reconcile truly with someone meet, when you meet with someone to talk to them if you've already put out your anger and now you can speak to them in love. Now you can speak to them uh, with real, genuine, good motives and with a desire to be at peace with them. And so that's what he says. Put out your anger and go reconcile with this person. Go reconcile. This, there should not be any broken relationships in the church, in the village, any this that needs to be dealt with. Let's read another one, 27. You have heard that it was said, verse 27, you have heard that it was said, do not commit adultery. But I tell you that anyone who looks at a woman lustfully, and we learned a few weeks ago that the word there is the word for covetousness. Lustful for us has all sorts of sexual overtones, which obviously there are sexual overtones here, but the word being used is the word for covet. And so I think that word is more helpful because it connects us with the Ten Commandments and all that. But anyway, that, recognize that. But I tell you that anyone who looks at a woman, meaning here really, in most cases, the wife of another man, covetously, has already committed adultery with her in his heart. If your right eye causes you to sin, gouge it out and throw it away. It is better for you to lose one part of your body than for your whole body to be thrown into hell. I'll stop there. Jesus witnessed another common failure in the villages in which he lived in, right? And a common failure in our churches as well, a common failure in our communities, and a common failure in the villages of that time that Jesus saw constantly. And it was men, and we're going to see more about why this is the case. But this isn't just talking about seeing attractive women and fantasizing about her. This is talking about Things that were that were, uh, although although you know it would apply to that, but I'm saying what what Jesus is getting at the heart of is that the men always had their eye out for the next woman, for the next one. They always had they they were married. Almost all men at this time, Jesus was an exception, but almost all men at this time, you know, 99 point some some percent would have been married unless other or widowed, you know. Um, but they had uh, they had their eye out for. They were already married. They had a wife. They had a wife that they were supposed to be committed to, and they were looking around at other men's wives, looking around at uh, maybe even virgins or young women who were single, who were not married yet, but they were looking around and they were thinking about what move they could make, 
who they could get next, how they could make a move. And we'll see in a minute why that was. It was because divorce was, was so easy. It was very easy for a man to swap out. Um, if, the, if the next woman was agreeable, it was very easy for him to, to proceed in that way. Um, so Jesus witnessed this common failure that the men, they had wives, and yet they were always looking around. They were always looking around for, for the next woman or a better woman or a woman that pleases them more. And if a woman caught their eye, then they began to think about that and, 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 and muse on that and plan for that. This was happening in every village, every village among God's people. This was the constant way that things went on. And Jesus was saying, guys, that, that's not the way you're supposed to live. That's not the way you have, you have made you. God has given you a wife. You already have your wife. You have the one that God has given you. This is the wife of your youth, this marriage covenant you have with her. This is the one that God has given you. God has made you one with her. How dare you begin to think about how, you should go, how you'd like to, to get another one and how you'd like, to, you'd like to sleep with that one. You'd like to acquire that one. You'd like to have that. How dare you? You have a wife. And so what he's saying here is you're coveting another man's wife. You're coveting a, 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 another, another woman uh, than the wife that you have. He's saying, do not turn away from your wife. Don't even turn away from your wife. Even don't let it begin in your thoughts, even in your thought life. Even if you don't voice it, don't let it begin in your thought life that you're turning away from your wife somehow just in your thoughts, just in your feelings. Even if you don't express it, if you're not one of those guys that goes around and talks about it all the time. Have you seen her? Have you seen? No, you you keep it to yourself. Even if you keep it to yourself, he says, not even in your thoughts, not even in your heart, not even just with your eyes, what your eyes look at. And what you're, don't do that. Don't do that. Keep your thoughts and your attention and your commitment and your faithfulness and your heart on your own wife, the wife that you already have. So Jesus' word to us is, if anything is keeping you, if anything is keeping you from loving your own spouse, keeping that commitment to your own husband, your own, and this of course applies to women too, just because Jesus was pulling out this instance, which was much more common in the culture in which he lived, um, of course, it went the other way as well, and there had to be a woman to be a partner in this too, right? And so um, this, uh, this uh, uh, it, it does apply to, to women as well. But if anything keeps you from loving your spouse, the spouse that God has given you, the spouse that God has made you one with, cut it off and throw it away, whatever it is. If it's a friendship with another woman, if it's a place that you go, if it's a situation, whatever it is, you look at your life and say, what is cutting me off from my own spouse, my own husband, my own wife? What is, what is distancing me from her, distancing me from him, and not, not allowing me to really uh, love and care for and serve and, 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 and do all the things that I'm supposed to do for my wife, my husband? If there's anything in your life that's coming in between you, anything in your life that is wrecking that, um, just get rid of it. Get, get it out of your life, he said. And he uses the dramatic example of your own right eye. You know, don't let anything get in the way of, your, of you loving your wife the way you're supposed to love your wife. If it's your right eye, throw it out. Get rid of it. If it's your right hand, throw it out. Get rid of it. Don't let anything come between. Because God has given you this woman. God has given you this man. And what he wants is for people to stay with the spouse that God has given them. Now, Things happen, and, 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 and one side betrays, and so the both sides can't be held responsible for when there's a betrayal. We'll talk about that in a minute. But, um, but, that's, but this is what Jesus is, he's, Jesus is teaching us. He's teaching us to love our spouses. In the, in the villages, he saw this failure to love the spouses, and then he 
um, and, and he wants it for his church that the church would live this way. And the next, the next one is very closely connected with this, and it's the same theme, so read it with me. It's just two verses. It's very quick. It's the same idea. It's along the same lines. It has been said, verse 31, that's where I am, it has been said anyone who divorces his wife must give her a certificate of divorce. This is a paraphrase of, of Moses' teaching. If there's a divorce, there must be a certificate of divorce. And that certificate of divorce, by the way, would say, you are now free to marry another man. That's what the certificate would say. It would be what a man would give to his wife, say, I release you, I let you go, I don't want you anymore, um, you're free to marry again. Um, I've set you free. That would be what a certificate was. But Jesus says, but I tell you, then anyone who divorces his wife, except for marital unfaithfulness, causes her to become an adulteress. And anyone who marries the divorced woman adult, commits adultery. Now, there's a lot of things that can be misunderstood in, in this thing, but what you need, the heart of the matter that you need to understand is what is Jesus driving? And this is not Jesus trying to give us let me talk to you about divorce, and let me talk to you about when, all the times that divorce is permissible. He's not doing that. He's not getting into that. That's not his point. What his point is, his main point, what he's driving at, is this is what I see happening in the villages. And, and, we, and we can see it in history, too. We have uh, Jews who, who wrote things from this time period, and they talk about their divorces. Josephus, a famous Jew, you know, a famous Jewish writer. We have his writings, and he talks about how he divorced his wife and got another one, a better one. I know. And so it was a com this was a very common, there were some Jews who taught that that wasn't right or you should be more strict. But most Jews in, in, the, in the villages, they, what they would have done if, if they were just no longer satisfied with the woman that they'd married first or second or whatever, they could just produce the certificate, write the certificate, get the certificate written and let her go and send her away. It was very easy to do. In the villages in, in, in Israel, it was not considered sin. It wasn't considered wrong to do this. It wasn't considered an evil thing to do. It was just an ordinary, this is just the way life is. This is just what happens. Man gets tired of her, he sends her away. That's what you do. And what it meant to say when you married someone, what it meant, what that meant was, it was meant you, were, you were making a commitment to them, and part of the commitment that you see in the language of that time was that it was quite a bit different from the language that we use today, but the language that they would use would be, I will bring you into my home. I will take care of you. I will feed you, I will clothe you, I will make sure your needs are met, I will take care of you, I will make sure that you are okay, I will love you, I will take, you know, that's what you were saying when you married it. So when you were divorcing them, you were saying, you know what, not anymore, I will not take care of you, I will not feed you, go. I will not, you cannot stay here, I'll take the kids, and you just go, you get out of here, and I do not want you anymore. And it was basically saying, I know that I said I would take care of you, but not anymore, I'm done. I'm looking for another woman. That's what I'm doing. And you can go find another man, fine. My divorce paper says, go find another man. And, Jesus, and this was happening regularly in Jewish life. This was just common, or I mean, it's common, ordinary in our, life, our lives too. But I don't want you, those of you who are divorced, um, this is not Jesus going after every divorce or saying all divorces or that everybody has sinned who's been in a divorce or all that. He, he, even, he lists one instance here, and Paul mentions another one. But in Mark and Luke, uh, Jesus st states it in an absolute way, saying, like, uh, uh, you, you, uh, shouldn't, you shouldn't divorce your wife. But none of these, none of these statements mean that, there is, uh, that there's not a time when divorce happens, that, that, that it shouldn't happen. In other words, if a man... If, if a man 
uh, if his wife is uh, sleeping around or going off with another man, it's perfectly biblical and perfectly uh, Christian and following Jesus to divorce uh, that woman who's gone off with another man and vice versa. If, you know, if she's, Paul talks about desertion, if she's run away from you and deserted you and won't, and won't stay with you anymore, it's perfectly permissible. So, but that's not the point of that. That, that would only, when I, read the, when I read the discussions of this, they always talk about divorce and when is it legal and all that you know, and go on. But that's not the point of Jesus' teaching. The point of Jesus' teaching is this, that you ha- if those of you who have a wife, those of you who have a spouse, um, you, can't, you can't throw her out. You can't, now, you know, there are these situations where when, when, she, when she does something or he does something and then divorce follows because they have sinned against you and done this grievous thing. But, um, but, uh, but the point of it is, is God has given you a spouse, the same as the one before. God has given you a spouse. God has loved you uh, by giving you this spouse and you are supposed to take care of her and take care of him and keep the commitment. God gave you this responsibility. God said, this woman is yours. Now you take care of her until you die or until she dies. And he says to the woman, this man I'm giving to you, you are one flesh with him. You take care of him now. Uh, you, take, you take care of him now. You stay with him and take care of him until he dies. And you can't just, you can't just you know, get tired of the person. You can't just get frustrated with the person or angry with the person or start to disagree with the person and abandon your commitments. And this, of course, would apply to, this kind of teaching of the scriptures would apply to other relationships we have too, but marriage is the most, is the one held up as the most supreme between two human beings. But, um, but of course, it would apply to, a, to a, you know, in, in another way to your children. You know, God has given you these children. You must take care of them until they reach the age when they are able to be on their own and take care of themselves. Um, you know, uh, elders of a church are given, are given the flock, the, the sheep under them. They're, they're made shepherds of their sheep. They must, they cannot abandon their responsibilities until that time comes when their service comes to an end. But they must, but in the time when they're serving, they must care for the sheep of the flock. And we could extend that into many different areas of life. We have certain responsibilities. But the first, those of you who are married, the first responsibility you have is that man, that woman next to you, that husband, that wife. God gave him to you, and it's your duty to care for and, and, and look out for and love and do good. And that's what Jesus wants you to do. But what Jesus was seeing in the Jewish villages and what he did not want to be in his churches was people just divorcing again and again and again. It wasn't what Moses, it wasn't what God meant when he told Moses that they could provide a certificate of divorce. God knew that there would be times when there would be, be necessary to have, to have a divorce because of the sin of one of the partners and then the other one needed to be set free. But that's not, the, that's not God's vision or intention for marriage. His intention is for the two Christians, the two people of God, to commit to one another and care for one another until death do them part. Um, it, was, it was that kind. So we must care for the spouse that God has given us. One more that we're going to do today. Verse 33. Again, you have heard that it was said to the people long ago, do not break your oath. An oath was, you know, uh, an oath was when you promised to do something, uh, that something you were going to follow up on, and you would make it to the Lord, calling you know, the Lord to witness that if you didn't do this, you know, the, the Lord would punish you and all that kind of idea. But it was... Um, uh, this kind of teaching is in the Old Testament, of course. Do not break your oath, but keep the oaths you have made to the Lord. But I, and, and, but I tell you, do not swear at all, either by heaven, 
for it is God's throne, or by the earth, for it is his footstool, or by Jerusalem, for it is the city of the great king. And do not swear by your head, for you cannot make even one hair white or black. Simply let your yes be yes, and your no, no. Anything beyond this comes from the evil one. Now, some of you may be convinced by this particular text because I don't know, from all the different backgrounds and your own Bible study, your own teaching that you've received. Some of you may be convinced by this particular text that Jesus is once again, sort of like with the divorce in Mark and Luke, giving an absolute, absolute commandment. Like, the point of all this is no oaths. I don't want any more oaths. That's the point. I don't want anybody to swear oaths anymore. I don't believe that's the point. And by the way, almost all theologians in church history, with a few exceptions, um, and maybe some of you in this room are, are with, the, with those exceptions, don't believe that that's what Jesus was teaching that there are absolutely no oaths to be made. What he's dealing with is what, what was happening in their, in, their, in their culture at that time, in the villages in Israel. What was going on was it was so common to make oaths. It was like no one did trust each other's words, so it was always like, I swear that I'm going to do this, or I swear this is true. And it was just like, um, and I don't think we even do that really like, like they did it in their culture. Their culture was just a swearing oaths culture. They were always swearing oaths. And it would be like, I swear, and it would be things like, I swear on Jerusalem, I swear on the gold of the temple, I swear on this, I swear on the other thing, I swear. And there were so many different things that people would swear on, it had become like trickery that even the rabbis discussed it, that, well, if you can give the right oath, you don't really have to do what you say. If you can give an oath that doesn't really, isn't really that solid an oath. Now, if you swear on God, before God, then you're, then you're bound. But if you can swear on one of these other things and slip it by them, you can get away with it. So there were all, it was just, I swear, you know, when you walk through a Jewish village, you've been like, I swear this, I swear the other thing, I swear I'm gonna do it, I swear this is true, I swear that I'll keep this, I swear the other. And it was swearing on the temple, swearing on, the, and it was, and Jesus was like, cut out all this garbage. Just say yes and do it, brother. He wasn't saying if the government requires you to take an oath, Never take it. That's not what he was saying. He wasn't saying if when you get married, you take an oath. Never, don't do that anymore. Don't take any oaths when you get married. He wasn't saying when, did you see Rachel this morning? When you joined a church, you take an oath. Don't do that. That's wrong. That's not what he's saying. That's not what he's saying. What he's saying is it's cut out all this deceptive oath-taking. You don't need all those oaths. There will be times, and they don't need to be often. You know, there's just rare times. Marriage, something the government might require. Um, you know, there are some times when you have to swear an oath. Um, we we're going to see in one of the scriptures I read in a minute that God swore oaths in the Bible. Uh, Jesus swore oaths. The, the apostles swore oaths. So they obviously were not against oaths as in some kind of absolute way. The point is, do what you're going to talk. It's not loving. You break relationship when you lie to people, when you lie to them, when you say, I'm going to do this, and you just don't intend to do it, or you don't follow up on what you're going to do. Don't do that. Just If you're, if you're going to do it, if you're going to say it, only say it if you're really going to do it. If you, I mean, obviously, things can happen, and that's why we say God willing, right? Because we never know what's really going to happen. James talks about that when he's teaching on Jesus' teaching here. James, his brother, talks, talks about this. We don't have time to get into that today. But, um, but you, if you're going to say it, intend to really do what you're saying. Um, say God willing, but, but definitely... You, Follow up on what you say. And if you say something is true, you better know it's true. Don't give people, I think, uh, say things are true that you just sort of think are true or you sort of guess are true. No, say what you, only what you know is true. 
Say what you only what you know is true and tell people and do what you're going to do. And in the villages, what was happening? People didn't trust each other. They were lying to each other. They were deceiving one another in business and in all, I promise I'll do this, never do, never do it. I'll, I'll do this at this time, never do it. I'll give you this I'll, uh, for this amount, never follow up. I, I swear that this is true, it's not true. I, I saw this happen, no, you didn't. You know, it's just lies and li- villages just... People dividing, dividing. You probably have all experienced this in school, in school, the class you were in, or in maybe in a church, or maybe in your business practice in the office or whatever. Just relationships breaking down because people who lie are like dogs that bite. After a while, you stay away. That guy bites. He's a liar. You can't trust him. And pretty soon, half the village, they're liars. And pretty soon, all relationships have busted up and broken down. And when we have that in the church, when we're lying, when we're saying things that just, we don't really know this is true, and we're really not going to follow, or we're really not going to follow up on this. We're, we're, we're wrecking relationships. We're breaking down. We're not, that's, um, uh, love does not lie. Love does not uh, make promises that it does not keep. Love tells the truth. Love, when you want to love someone, you tell them the truth. When you want to love someone, you, you, what you tell them, you follow up on. If you make a promise to them, you follow you follow up on it. Um, so we must do what we say we're going to do. We must claim to be true only what is true. Love tells the truth. So we've got these four examples. Really, I'm sort of, uh, sort of boiling it down to three because those middle two are so closely connected, but there's, but there's a little bit of difference between them. Um, they're both about marriage. Um, but we have these, these, these areas of love that, break, that, were, that Jesus saw in the village life in Israel how relationships are breaking down, and he did not want this for his villages, his church, right? His communities that he was establishing. He wanted his disciples to live differently. Don't live like the village you grew up in. In the church, you're going to live differently. You're not going to lie. You're not going to covet. You're not going to break your, your faithfulness with, to, your, to your spouse. Uh, you're not going to let anger continue. You're going to extinguish your anger, and you're going to reconcile with anybody you are angry about. This is what we're going to do. This is the way we're going to live. This is what I'm calling you to, Jesus is saying, okay? Now, um, what's really important to catch about all this, and I wish I could have gone through all because it, it would have been fuller if we could do all six, but we're just going to do the first four today, but I want to make sure you catch this. This, this is, Jesus is telling us how he wants us to live, but the reason he's telling us how he wants us to live, how he wants us to love, because this is how Jesus loves. And Jesus loves like the Father loves. So we're being told to, do, to live this way, to love this way, to relate with other people this way, because this is how we imitate Jesus, our Savior, and this is how we imitate God the Father. This is the way God the Father is. This is the way Jesus the Son is as a human being among us. This is the way he lived in the villages. This is the way he lived among his disciples. And this is what he did uh, uh, this is the, what he showed us by his cross when he, when he laid his life, gave his life up uh, for us. Three things I'll say. Jesus does not stay angry, but he reconciles. Jesus does not stay angry, but he reconciles. He, he, he offers reconciliation to everyone, right? Jesus laid down his life to purchase forgiveness for us of our sins. He does not keep his anger, harbor his anger, but he, he offers reconciliation. He offers forgiveness this be- one of the most beautiful texts, which is repeated over and over again in the Old Testament, is a description of the Father, but it's also a description of Jesus. Listen to this description. 
Psalm 103.8, the Lord is compassionate and gracious, slow to anger, slow to anger, abounding in love. He will not always accuse, nor will he harbor his anger forever. He does not treat us as our sins deserve or repay us according to our iniquities. For as high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is his love for those who fear him. As far as the east is from the west, so far has he removed our transgressions from us. This is the example the Father has given us by sending Jesus. This is the example Jesus has given us by his laying his life down for sinners, not bringing anger against them, but bringing reconciliation, offering um, his, his atonement, his sacrifice on our behalf to be reconciled to God. And God sent Jesus, because, not because uh, uh, Jesus interfered with God's plan, but because God, the Father, sent Jesus to, re- he wanted to be reconciled to us. These people over here um, have sinned against me, and I should be angry with them and destroy them but, and reject them, but instead I offer them mercy and reconciliation and grace. So this is the way God is. Um, that goes back to the first teaching about anger, why we're supposed to give up our anger, because God gave up his. Number two, Jesus is faithful to his people. Jesus is faithful to his people, like we are called to be faithful to our spouses, like we are called to be faithful to our husbands and wives. And once again, I, 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 I keep saying this because I, just, because I know the circumstances we have in our own church, and I want to make sure I'm clear on this. I'm not, I don't believe Jesus is beating up people who are... Um, who are divorced because their spouse has abandoned them or cheated on them. I don't think that he's not, he's not beating up on, on you for that. Um, what he's saying is for those of us who are married, um, and, and, he, and he, he, if anything, he's recognizing the agony and pain that you've suffered by being abandoned by your spouse. And he's saying to the rest of us, don't do that to your spouse. Do you see what this person did to their spouse? Don't do that to yours. Don't abandon them. Don't reject them. Love them. Take care of them to the end. Stay with them, love them, um, be patient with them, forgive them, don't be angry with them, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Don't abandon them for someone else. Um, this is not the way, the way that God has called us to live. Jesus is faithful to his people, his bride, right? Jesus is faithful to his bride, his church, his people. He has made a covenant with us, like a marriage covenant, and he will keep his covenant. He has made a covenant with you and me, and so we're just following Jesus' example in our marriages when we, when we see what Jesus is taught, when we see what we're told about Jesus, I'll read two scriptures really quickly for you. Ephesians 5, 28. In this same way, husbands ought to love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife uh, loves himself because they're one. After all, no one ever hated their own body, but they feed and they care for their own body. There's that idea, again, of how a spouse cares for and feeds and takes care of their spouse. Just as Christ does the church. Jesus Christ takes care of his church as a good husband takes care of his wife, for we are members of his body. Jesus is faithful to his bride, to his church. One other passage from Psalms. Your love, 36.5, your love, Lord, reaches to the heavens. Your faithfulness to the skies. Faithfulness. He is faithful to his marriage covenant. He never abandons his people. He doesn't turn his back on his people. If you, if you belong to Christ, he, he's never, he is a good husband. He will never abandon his church, never abandon his people. He is faithful, faithful. He keeps his 
Uh, he keeps his, we're going to talk about a man, how he keeps his promises, but he is true to his, his, this relationship, true to this covenant. Um, your faithfulness to the skies, your righteousness is like the highest mountain, your justice like the great deep. You, Lord, preserve both people and animals. How priceless is your unfailing love, oh God. His love never fails. It never stops. He doesn't just one day wake up and he's done with you. He, his love never fails. He never stops loving us. He is faithful to his church, faithful to his bride. He is the good husband who doesn't turn away for even a moment from us. His love never fails. How priceless is your unfailing love, O oh God. People take refuge in the shadow of your wings because it is the safe place to be. Um, it is the place where, uh, where we are kept safe by the one who is committed to us, faithful to us. And the third thing I'll say is Jesus keeps his promises. He keeps his promises. He tells the truth in his word, and he keeps his promises. And I had, two, I had, I had a text on this, and there was another one that was so good. I'm just going to read them both for you. These are both so great. I don't have time to explain them or go into great detail, but just sort of let them wash over you. They're telling you, in Jesus and in his cross, God's promises to you will be fulfilled, are true. Listen to these, listen to these two texts. One is from 2 Corinthians 1.18. But as surely as God is faithful, our gospel message to you, Paul says, is not yes and no. For the Son of God, Jesus Christ, who was preached among you by us, and then he says, by me, by Silas, by Timothy, God's message that was preached among you by us was not yes and no. But in Jesus, it has always been Yes, 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 yes. For no matter how many promises God has made, they are yes in Christ. He's not hiding anything. He's not getting out of his promises. He's not coming up with something else. He is keeping the promises he's made in his word to his people, those who will, those who will hope in him those who will put their faith in him, his word to you in Jesus Christ is yes. My promises are yes in Christ, not in you, not in your accomplishments or your good deeds, but yes in his blood, in his broken body, in his cross, in his sacrifice, what he has done for you, his all the promises are yes because of Jesus, because of what he's done. For no matter how many promises God has made, they are yes in Christ. And so through him, the amen is spoken by us to the glory of God. Amen, amen. Now it is God who makes both us and you stand firm in Christ. He anointed us. He set his seal of ownership on us. And he put his spirit, his Holy Spirit, in our hearts as a deposit, guaranteeing what is to come. That the Holy Spirit that's present in you is the guarantee. It is the promise. It is sure. It is a guarantee to you that all that has been promised, all the hope that the Bible teaches of is true and certain, and you can be confident in it, and it is coming to you and to me and to his church. This is the hope that we live by. This is the hope. So Jesus is, when Jesus says something to us, his promise is true. His promise is, and, and it's, it's, it's true because of him. Because of his, not because we're going to hold, up, hold things up, but because he's going to hold things up and he's going to make it happen. And it's by his glory, his righteousness. The other text that I was not going to read, I am going to read just because it's so great. 
Hebrews 6.16. And by the way, hear God swearing an oath if you don't believe that it's okay sometimes to swear oaths. Uh, um, there's a section in the Westminster Confession of Faith on this if you'd like to read it, if you'd like to look in your hymnal and, and find that section. Yeah, I didn't look at the number uh, and, uh, and read about that. But anyway, Hebrews 6.16. People swear by someone greater than themselves, and the oath confirms what is said and puts an end to all argument. This is the way oaths work. Because God wanted to make the unchanging nature of his purpose, his long-term purpose for mankind, for, for his people, very clear to the heirs of what was promised, what was promised, he confirmed it with an oath. God confirmed it with an oath. God did this so that by two unchangeable things, his promise and his oath, in which it is impossible for God to lie, we who have fled to take hold of the hope set forth, set before us, may be greatly encouraged. We have this promise. God has taken an oath that he will bring it to us, fulfill it. We have this hope as an anchor for the soul. This is our anchor, that God has promised us and taken an oath that he's going to do these things in Jesus. Firm and secure, the anchor for the soul. It enters the inner sanctuary behind the curtain where our forerunner, Jesus has entered on our behalf. He did it. He made this sure. He made this certain. He has accomplished. When he was on the cross and he said, it is finished, he was saying, everything that God promised, I have now accomplished here on this cross, and it is certain it is all going to come to fruition. It is all going to happen, and I promise it. And Jesus keeps his word. So we're supposed to keep our word because, we want it, because we're supposed to be like Jesus, right? We're supposed to be like the Father, we're supposed to love others, tell the truth, and keep our word. Three prayers. Let me close with this. Three prayers. First prayer that you can pray, show me Jesus' love. The more you see Jesus' love, the more you see and experience in the Bible, of course, that's where you go to find it, right? You don't just look in the air. You, you read it in the Bible. You, talk, you, you read what the Bible says, and you pray, show me Jesus. Show me Jesus and show me his love. There's a ministry called that, show me Jesus, a reformed ministry. Show me Jesus, show me Jesus' love. And you listen to his word, and you ask the Holy Spirit to show you Jesus. Because the more that you uh, uh, see Jesus and see Jesus' love, the more you'll begin to see your sin. And you'll begin to want to change, and you'll begin to be able to change. The more you know Jesus, the more you know God and what he's really like, the more you will become what God wants you to be. The more you will become like Jesus. Um, the glory will, will reflect off of your face as you're looking at his glory, Paul tells us. So the second prayer is show me my sin. This is really important. It's very easy. I know a sermon like this, these kinds of sermons get preached all the time, and people walk out, and they never see their own sin, so it does them no good, right? They don't see their own sin. They don't, when, when I was talking about the, the sins earlier, if you saw nothing, um, you saw there's none of that in my life at all. Maybe that's possible. Today you're having a very glorious month and you, you really are on top of things. But I'm guessing God's got something to show almost all, if not all of us in this room and even in the four areas I talked about today. Show me my sin. Show me where my life is not in, in line with Jesus' love. My love is not like Jesus' love, not like Christ's love in these ways that, that, that J.R. preached about or, and Jesus gave us these four sections today. Um, show me my sin. Show me where, and by the way, it has to do with your heart. Where is my heart wrong? Where is the anger? Where is the covetousness? 
Where is the unfaithfulness to my own spouse in my own heart? Where's that unfaithfulness? Where's that covetousness for something different? Where's that, where are those lies that I tell and I never intend, those things I say I never intend to follow up on or I, I intend to not tell the truth and, and I deceive? Where is that anger that I won't get rid of, that I won't expel? Um, show me my sin. And then thirdly, show me Jesus' love. Two, show me my sin. And three, give me Jesus' love in my heart. Because when Jesus' love, as you know Jesus' love and his love enters into you, it will expel. If Jesus' love is growing in you, it will expel your anger. It will expel your lies. It will expel your deceitfulness and your covetousness. It will expel your unfaithfulness to your own spouse. It will change your way of thinking and change your way of feeling. Now, you'll go back and sin again, and then you'll need to be praying again and be in the Word again. Um, we, we never should stop praying and being in the Word, but you know what I'm saying. You need to get back uh, to, to seek the Lord's help again. Show me Jesus' love. Show me my sin, and give me Jesus' love in my heart for those around me, to expel my lies, my faithlessness, my anger, my covetousness. Let me conclude with this. Let's have a work day at this church. We used to have these work days, work days where we got together and we worked on the edifice, the building, right? We cleaned it up and we fixed it up. Well, we need to have a work day in this church. And what we need to do is we need to clean up the anger. We need to clean up um, the covetousness. We need to clean up the lies. And we need to fix broken marriages. They're not broken. Maybe you're not divorced yet, but the, but the marriage is on the rocks. The marriage is you are estranged from one another. We need to fix broken relationships. There's someone maybe sitting in this room who you're estranged from. If you're angry with them, you're estranged from them. Do you understand that? If you're angry with somebody in this room, no matter how time, you're one of those ones who suppresses that anger. It's, it's not really there. There's nothing there. There's nothing there at all. It's just, oh, that's, that's barely anything. That's not, that's not anger. That's not really anger. Ask the Holy Spirit if it's anger. Ask Jesus if it's anger. Find out if it's really anger. What's going on with that? Um, let's, let's have a work day where we fix everything that is broken. Broken relationships, broken trusts, broken marriages, uh, all the kinds of relationships that can be damaged in a church. Let's fix it up. Now, we're only going to do that by the grace of God, by his forgiveness for our sin and um, that he's already provided for and we're going to celebrate and rejoice in in just a moment. And uh, he loves us. Nothing that I've said today means that God doesn't love you or that Jesus, that Jesus isn't your savior and he doesn't love you, right? But he wants to put his love in your heart and expel those things. He wants to do it to me. He wants to do it to all of us. Let's pray.